everybody, it's Brian. Thanks for tuning in. If you're ready to buy or sell a home in Pierce, South King, or Thurston County, please check out John Hurlbutt and his team over at Altitude Homes. John's an old friend and someone I know you can trust. He will also donate $500 to Ben's Fund for every closed transaction. I know how hard it is to find a real estate agent who has your best interests in mind. John can be that guy for you and benefit a great cause to boot. Check them out on the web at altitude-re.com slash hb. Again, altitude-re.com slash hb. Or give them a call at 253-222-2626. That's 253-222-2626. Go Hawks! Hey everybody, it's Brian M. Hauser, and uh, you've made it to episode 51 of Real Hawk Talk. We have a pretty special episode today. Not only did the Seahawks clinch the playoffs last week, but Pete Carroll was signed to an extension. Some pretty big news to talk about. And uh, here to help us talk about it is uh, an old friend. Uh, old friend of Seahawks Twitter, or Seahawks Twitter existed really. Uh, one of the preeminent uh, bloggers, first bloggers before bloggers was really a thing, uh, especially on the sports side. And now, um, what is your title for ESPN, Mike? It's very fancy now. Instead of blogger for the News Tribune, uh, I think it's senior writer. So I don't know what that means. I, I think I'm a writer, you know, but they want to call me senior. That's fine. Do you do you get dominion over junior writers? Is that I would think so. I don't know of anyone who goes by junior writer, you know, uh, so I, I don't know. Senior writer. I had to look it up because somebody asked me. I didn't know. And I saw it's, it's actually I think it says that now, like on ESPN.com, you know, under the name. I think it, I think it might say it. Well, congratulations on reaching that status. Uh, we got a lot to cover with you. Um, before we get to stuff that's specific to you, um, introduce Jeff and, and some uh, some general pod news. So, Jeff, good having you, dude. Thanks, man. Big week for us. It is. It is. Um, and uh, folks are probably noticing that we're missing a few people. So, Evan um, is moving to Arizona on like Saturday. So I have the pleasure of taking him and Alex out for, I think what will be their last plate of Matador nachos tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow evening, um, should be nice. Um, and he'll be back on the pod after they move. So I think this week should be the last, uh, hiatus. And then Nathan Ernst, who's been gone for a little while, they had their, their third Ernst. Um, I think it was yesterday or maybe it's today we got, it was today we got the news. So, uh, fresh out of the oven, they are debating names. Um, not going to share anything here more than that, but, uh, please make sure you, uh, shout out to, to Nathan on uh, Twitter at Nathan E 11. Um, for some reason he continues to have that as his Twitter handle. Um, so that's the, that's the great news, um, for the, for the pod people. Um, of which I hope there are many. And then we got to talk for a second about um, Mike. I, I was listening to a version of this very podcast after the week two loss to the Bears when the Seahawks hit were 0 2 and were passing the ball about 70% of the time, 66% of the times in neutral script situations. 
and we're, Chris Carson didn't play for half a game. Uh, they didn't run the ball for almost two quarters against Chicago. Like, didn't run a single run rushing play. And from that, we were ready to fire Pete Carroll. We said he had lost okay. his way, just like Richard Sherman. He was done. Uh, so, you know, I'm really interested uh, what your thoughts are about how we got from there to where we are right now, where Pete Carroll signed an extension. I believe Pete when he says, my bad on the first two games, and there was sort of a, you know, come to Jesus type meeting, which I feel like the Seahawks have had those like eight games into the season every year, the last few years. I've written the same column like after week four every year. Look, I know you think the sky's falling, but they'll figure it out. Second half of the year, the offense will perk up. And it was always like, if you were a Seahawks fan, how frustrating is that? Because they would light the world on fire the second half of the year. It's like, what took them so long? And I feel like uh, Pete just grabbed the reins right away after week two with the new coordinator. He said, no, 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 this is how we're going to do it. It's a little different than some of the other adjustments they've made, but it's totally in keeping and consistent with the coaching changes they made, the fact that they have multiple healthy, good running backs, which I think is a huge difference um, from the past, huge difference. Um, that's something I argue, argued with maybe Brock and Salk last year. Maybe it was Graz about, like, you know, what is it, the line more or the running backs? Well, it's both, but the running back, having that stable, I think, has enabled this too. Yeah, yeah. Um... Jeff, I know you were listening to a little bit of that episode. Uh, anything uh, jump out at you when you were listening back to uh, our rantings and ravings? Uh, the Pete Carroll thing stands out. Well, Evan's view hasn't changed much. He, he opened the show with like a crazed rant about how Pete like a, that's completely lost it. And he lost his identity and they were passing 60% of the time and the running situation. So his view hasn't changed that much. But yeah, it's just remarkable how, as Mike said, Pete completely took over they put they're winning exactly how he wants to win exactly the makeup he talked about all offseason and i guess the reason we were so frustrated was because they weren't playing with that identity they talked about their offensive line looked as bad as it did the last few years and so yeah it's pretty remarkable how almost immediately in that week three game against dallas which i actually watched a little of today they just completely flipped the switch and they got back to that style and it's just crazy to go from where we were after week two, because I was totally on board with what you were saying to where we are now. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit more detail. Um, I do feel like I've known Mike for a while, and so I kind of gave him the very quick intro. And it occurs to me because I'm dealing more and more with like these 20 year olds that are and teenagers that are Seahawks fans that probably don't know your history. Like, um, back when back when um, the CX were going to their first Super Bowl um, in 2005, you were working for the Tacoma News Tribune and wrote for a Seahawks Insider blog back then that was probably the first blog I had seen where people anybody was actually doing more than just beat writing like about the team, but actually doing analysis and looking at the stats. And I think you and I started getting to know each other because you need some help with Excel. It's, it is true. So my first year covering the Seahawks, I covered the Seahawks for the Tacoma News Tribune as a beat reporter from 1998, Dennis Erickson's last year, through through the 06 season. So in, before the 05 draft, 
one of our, I guess we had an online editor uh, who, uh, Mark Briggs, who asked me, hey, for the draft, would you like to do like a Seahawks blog? And it would basically be just sort of live blogging the draft. And I said, sure, sounds fun to me. And they got like way more traffic than they were anticipating. Um, and they said, you want to just keep doing it? So I, I, I loved it. It was perfect for me because I wanted that outlet to continually be analyzing. And at that time, remember, there's no social media. There's no Twitter. Um, if you're a diehard fan, you know, you're listening to the radio, you're reading the newspaper. Beyond that, I mean, you're going to websites, but there's not a lot of the really developed hardcore sites. So for me, to you know, the team's not putting everything up on the website at that time. For me, it was just a great way to get information out quickly, um, to connect with fans. I love that part of it. You know, I, I would go meet fans in parking lots of tailgates and that type of stuff. And Brian, you were important to me because at that time I was trying to um, find new ways to cover the team. You know, Matt Hasselbeck had sort of steered me in the right direction in terms of what to chart during the game. I started charting personnel. You know, are they using 21, 11, all that? I was doing that back then, but I didn't really know how to categorize it. You got me some expertise and sort of sent me down the road on Microsoft Excel. I started charting the games that way. I still have, I developed a game tracking system that one of my buddies who covers another team still uses. I don't have to do that because we've got so much great data now, um, but I do have to give you a lot of credit. Um, and I went today. <laughs> When you, you asked me too much credit, dude, no, I, I only helped you a little bit. Uh, no, you helped me a lot. And it got, it just got my mind going down that avenue. It helped me become more analytical. You helped me with the tools. So that was pretty cool. I would say the, remember the roided out rosters I used to do, I, you know, yeah. 50 column rosters of a team with a historical. Now you had a hand in that. So thank you. Uh, it makes me happy to hear that. And um, for folks uh, that, been around for Hawk Blogger since we started, which was 2007. Um, I think if I'm remembering right, I made a request to you, Mike, uh, to legitimize my blog by being the first comment on my first blog post. Is that something? <laughs> I'm looking up this. I'm going to find this email, by the way, okay. on another screen. You go ahead and talk, and I will. I will find. Yeah, it. I mean, for for folks, anyone that that's interested in just getting started with writing about Seahawks or blog about anything you care about. One of the things you realize is after you hit publish and you get your first article out there is that nobody's going to actually find it. <laughs> uh, and so I was like, oh, man, I at least, you know, and if they do find it, they're going to like wonder who the heck this person is. So yeah. building some credibility was important. And uh, Mike was the most credible person I had a relationship with. So uh, I reached out. Now I'm way down the list. There's way more credible people than me. But yeah, I don't know, man. You're, you're high up on my list. Yeah, we, we, I do have emails here from 07. That's probably sick. You said you keep yours too. But yes, we were going back and forth. You actually asked me, I believe, to be the first commenter on your blog. And then I did. And then you said there were verification issues. People were questioning whether, you know, a celebrity of my stature, you know, beat reporter for the News Tribune. I mean, that is extreme, extremely unbelievable that you could ever, you know, know somebody like that. But that uh, we did. Nice. That was the case. People really like I, I. You actually did write the first comment, and I was super uh, appreciative. And then no one believed that it was really you. I was like, "Damn it, dude! This is a C-list guy. I mean, what do you tell? You don't believe me on that?" 
Well, not for Seahawks, not for Seahawks fans, definitely not during that time. So enough about that. I think we've caught people up on on your journey, uh, you know, in your cred of being uh, what I call the OG of, uh, of Seahawks analysis. Um, so as we were kind of talking about before, I mean, I have a ton of questions for you. I know, I know Josh, uh, not Josh, Jeff does as well. I was talking with Josh on the, the chat here. Um, so I'm kind of curious what your perception is, Mike, now that you get kind of a national taste um, and you're not just focused on the Seahawks. I think you were telling me that, you know, you were in uh, Miami for that crazy New England finish. Um, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're here for the Chiefs game. You kind of go, go all, over the, all over the place. What's the perception of the Seahawks and what's the perception of Pete Carroll um, that you get around Bristol and around the nation? Well, the perception of Carroll is really positive in the coaching community. I think people who know how hard it is to do what they've done appreciate the fact that he has a vision. He's consistent. He's like we've talked about. He's unafraid to be himself, you know, and I think you better believe in something. Right. I mean, it doesn't mean you all have to agree, uh, agree on exactly how things are done, but he has a clear philosophy. He's been consistent with it. I think that's admired. I do believe uh, media wise, the Seahawks. Um, have been totally misunderstood. I, I, I feel like one of the things I would run into, even with people in the league, was like this expectation that Pete could be winding down or that maybe he was going to step away after one of these seasons. Maybe even this would be his last year. The empire was crumbling a little bit. And I would always say, well, what else is Pete Carroll going to do? I mean, he realistically has less than a 10-year window to ever do what he absolutely loves to do. He's not going to retire and go um, live this sleepy existence. I mean, he's got too much energy. So um, that's just what I would tell people is, hey, just relax. I mean, I don't think it's all falling apart. And um, I actually thought they would win eight or nine games this year. That was my – you can go back. I know a lot of people didn't. But uh, I think John Clayton and I both thought that going into the season and talked about it. I just – I feel like there's been a gap between the perception of Pete, what's actually going on, uh, you know, all the way through this year. Well, and you're talking to two guys that both uh, had the Seahawks at nine wins. Um, I think the way they got to nine wins is not the way either of us expected. For some reason, I mean, the Seahawks at most are going to win 10 games um, in the regular season, at least. And yet it feels like a much bigger overachievement than that and um you know jeff part of part of what you know we've seen here is that the seahawks you know pete have gotten there by doing something that's very different than what is becoming convention like they they are doing standard conventional football lots of running um you know limited throwing you know essentially uh point suppression kind of tactics to have fewer possessions overall in the games. Um, meanwhile, you got Kansas City and you've got Los Angeles and you've got others just putting up tons of points. Um, this is a question I'll have for both of you, but I'm curious for you first, Jeff. I mean, what do you think this means um, for the NFL, knowing we're in this era of modern analytics and, and, and changes to offensive schemes? Do you think that what Pete Carroll is trying to do, do you think he's going to change at all? And do you think that he needs to? I, I do not expect Pete to change his philosophy anytime soon, probably ever. Um, nothing to do with his age. Pete 
when when Pete got let go from the Patriots, he spent a lot of time in that year off, kind of trying to figure it out, figuring out what went wrong in the past. And he he's admitted between then he really didn't know what was happening at that point. And that's where he spent the time with John Wooden, and he took a lot of lessons he learned from Bill Walsh and really developed a philosophy he believed in. Going to USC and then later Seattle, it's been the same program, it's been the same style, and. As you've seen lately, even though the game has shifted maybe towards more passing and the teams that are more successful have done that, Pete's going the other way. And he's believing in what he built years ago at USC and years years ago in Seattle. And you've seen with Baltimore and Seattle and how they've progressed in the second half of the year, there isn't one way to do things. And that's kind of a mistake a lot of people will make thinking just maybe where the data is going, where the numbers are, thinking there's one way to play. But you can win in a lot of different ways and Pete's with the personnel they have now. Pete's way is working. Yeah. So, Mike, I mean, you have access to more analytics than than us schlobs, <laughs> and uh, and I'm sure that the talk. I mean, you got Brian Burke, who's you know kind of the grandfather of some of these advanced analytics that are getting a lot of uh, attention. What's the what's the general point of view there? Do people feel like um, the game is just going to change completely? Or do they, you know, do people and do you believe that a type of approach like Pete Carroll's can endure? I believe that the job of a good coach is to do what works best for your guys, right? So um, I think that that's part of this, that, yes, there's there's more than one way to win. I think that's part of it. What Pete has shifted, though, there's 70 percent, 11 personnel. Yeah, maybe it, that might even be on first down. I'd have to, I, I can't remember what I just looked it up like five minutes ago, but they've made a big shift towards that. That's the shift of the league. Okay, I've got it right here. There's on first down this year, it's, the league is 55% 11 personnel. Last year it was 49%. It's 37% since 06. So Pete's done that. There, I, I think what's happening right now is that offenses are taking advantage of defenses on early downs by using traditional passing personnel um, to make themselves less predictable. You get lighter fronts to run against. Um, and if people are going to still play the run, there's great opportunities in passing. I've been surprised that Pete, I mean, they're right now, like the thing I chart, I chart first down tendencies, first 28 minutes of the game. Okay. That is before any two minutes, that's before the score is affecting us. You might have mentioned, you know, sort of a neutral situation. Pete this year is 34% pass, I believe, in that situation. I mean, it's like 10 percentage points off of what he's even been in the past. Mm -hmm. It's totally an outlier in the league. So that surprises me. You know, I, I wonder if – I think there's probably some yards and big plays that they are sacrificing on early downs right now because they're so determined to run it. But – those plays will be there as they need them, you know, uh, and I think it's still working for them. I don't think that – I think that will come back a little bit. I don't I don't know that you're going to be at that percent so far off the charts compared to the rest of the league. What I could see happening is uh, you get a Disley back. You know, you add another receiver. Maybe you feel a little bit better, um, you know, throwing it a little more. But Pete this year has just been so determined to – reestablish who they are it's worked it's probably helped protect other areas of their team their defense is statistically about what it was the first year pete got there uh you know really the in our our uh 
efficiency metrics, which are expected points-based, but it's like the same. It's the same as 2010. They're just way more efficient on offense. So that's uh, a, a roundabout way of saying I think that I, I think that there are more ways than just one to win, but I do think they have made some shifts like the rest of the league has by being so heavy 11 personnel. What can you repeat the 11 personnel number again? What, what was the percentage there and what was the change? Okay, so this year in the NFL, I just try to pause for a second for people that don't know 11 personnel, maybe. Uh, yeah, 11 personnel, the 11 is one. I don't know why football, football's way overly confusing, doesn't need to be this way. But 11 personnel means one running back and one tight end. There's five eligible receivers. It's basically three wide receiver offense. Okay, you're going to have a running back. You're going to have a tight end. It's rare that you would not have one of those, but it's three wide receiver offense. So back when I was covering Mike Holmgren, 21 personnel was base offense in the NFL. That was his base offense, two running backs and one tight end, only two wide receivers. Remember, you'd see that I formation, the two wide receivers out to the side, a tight end on the line of scrimmage. That's the way football was played on early downs. Well, in the last couple of years, the Rams have been, and then on third down, okay, it would be 11 personnel. You get to third down if you were Seattle, you know, then you'd bring, you'd, you know, Bobby Ingram, you'd have Daryl Jackson, Gordon Robinson. You might bring in Mo Morris as your third down back, and you'd have a, you know, Jeremy Stevens as your tight end, whatever. Um, now that third down offense is the predominant offense on first down in the NFL, including for Seattle. So what that's doing to defenses is, they're seeing kind of a passing formation, but it's still a traditional running down. So what is it? What's so fascinating to me this year is that third down numbers are horrendous. Okay. The third down sack rates as high as it's been, ever been. No one's producing on third down. Third down's worse, worse than it's been. It's first and second down where all these teams are making hay. And I think it's because They've sort of recalibrated the run-pass ratio, the personnel usage become a little harder to peg. And I'm wondering if late in the year, if defenses are doing a better job, you know, of catching up or wait a minute, what are we doing defending the run here? Or what are we doing defending the pass? Maybe getting smarter about it. The percentages you asked about though, this year, 11 personnel, three wide receivers is 55% on first down in the, in the NFL. So last year it was 49%. That's a pretty big jump in one year, right? And if you go since 2006, counting all the years, it's 37% 11. So that's a huge shift that's going to make a premium value on the running back who doesn't have the huge shoulder pads like Sean Alexander used to have, but the Camaro, right? Mm -hmm. The Kareem Hunt, when he was playing, these guys can catch the ball 20 yards down the field. And so like the five eligible receivers is still the limit, right? But what, how we're using those guys is totally changing before our eyes um, towards more three receivers, more backs that can do different things. The tight ends are now increasingly lined up elsewhere, you know, not just on the end line. I mean, watch any of these tight ends. They're, they're not just standing next to the right tackle the whole game. Have you seen uh, George Fan? <laughs> you know, talking about personnel groupings, um, you know, I've been doing some research earlier today, even, and the Seahawks have essentially played with six offensive linemen on over 20% of their snaps. It's amazing. Well, they used to put a fullback on the field, and now it seems like instead they're doing this. So they want that heavy 
look so that they can run the ball whenever they want to and run it effectively. Um, but I, I still think the luxury for them is they've got a really good passing quarterback too. So That's right. they've really got the best. And you look at Russell's numbers, they're amazing. And when he needs to drop a dime in there down the field, like the Tyler Lockett the other night, you do it better than like almost anybody in the whole league. So that's a pretty good position to be in. And I think that separates them from some of the other playoff teams that may be stronger on defense or whatnot. But some of those other teams are trying to run the ball but don't have that quarterback who can make the same throws. So, you know, you talked about how the Seahawks are very different in terms of, you know, what they're doing on early downs, um, you know, relative to the rest of the league. And we talked a little bit about, I mean, you talked about this defense being essentially equivalent of the, what was a really trashy, you know, Colin Cole led, you know, 2010 defense um, for, for the Seahawks. I mean, was, Chris Clemens was probably uh, the savior of that team. Um, it feels like, as you were saying, that the, that the team's really overachieved. Why don't you think there's more conversation about Pete Carroll for coach of the year? outside of Seattle? Well, if you look at their season, they were 0-2. They were 2-3. and They were 4-5 and on their way to 8-6 and with a loss to the 49ers. So I don't think they've had that sustained period where they had a great record or were surging ahead of some of these other teams, lost to the Chargers. You can talk about Anthony Lynn's kind of bit, one of those guys in the running for it. Uh, but there is, I think, you know, I used to roll my eyes a little bit when I would hear the, you know, if I was talking to people with the Seahawks who would complain about being in the corner of the Northwest. And I, I you know, I believe some of that though, too. Um, I believe that this team is, can be a little bit of an afterthought nationally. People don't get out of here as much. Also I think when you set the bar so high, it's hard to live up to it. You know, I did a piece a few years ago, if you look at like what Bill Belichick's record has to be to win coach of the year, he has to win like 14 games or more to be considered. He could be the coach of the year every year. I mean, they win. He has more wins than the coach of the year almost, you know, a lot of the years. So that could be some of it too, you know, just that they've been to the mountaintop. They've been there twice. He should have won it by now. In my opinion, I think certainly John Schneider should have been executive of the year once or twice. So maybe he gets it this year. Maybe it's next year, you know, maybe next year they, are back in the Super Bowl. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, Mike, you uh, you mentioned some of the changes offensively this year. Uh, what has your perception been of Brian Schottenheimer and the job he's done his first year? Well, I think he's done a great job in fitting what Pete Carroll wants to do. You know, and I was a little bit of a defender of him when they hired him just because I get so tired of the instant sort of Twitter reaction and, oh, this guy's a dinosaur and this and that. And, you know, I, I look at what Brian Schottenheimer has, you know, he had however many years of Mark Sanchez as his quarterback with Rex Ryan as his head coach. And he probably did sort of what would help that team, like, get to the AFC Championship game, right? I mean, you're not going to be a dynamic offense in that, in that setting. So um, I think he's done a good job. Um Russell Wilson's coming off maybe his best game of the season, uh, has played some good games. It seems to be – I think they're trending in the right direction. So I have, a, I have a generally positive view of what he's doing because it's consistent with what the head coach wants to do, and it seems to be, seems to be working. Where would you rank him 
and offensive coordinators around the league, you know, like rough, rough scale, not like stack ranked. Is he, if, if there's the five tiers as you have for like the quarterback uh, rankings that are always uh, one of your fun, <laughs> fun times of the year, everyone yells at Mike because uh, they don't like what uh, GMs are telling him. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You put Schottenheimer in that. I, I think you put him somewhere in the second tier. I don't think we've seen him. I mean, there's not a wow factor with what they're doing or, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know that we've seen him though outside the context of a defensive minded head coach. So, I mean, I'm trying to think how many years has he had under, is under Fisher? Has he ever worked under an offensive head coach? Has he ever sort of, has he ever been told, Hey, Brian, go do your thing, man. You're going to, we're going to, we're going to do exactly what you want to do. I don't know that he has. So I think he's done a good job within what he's been asked to do, but I don't think that we can say, you know, that he's a cutting edge coordinator based on his offenses. You know, I mean, what he hasn't been asked to really do that. And we haven't seen that, but I think he's definitely better than the perception of him, um, which is tiresome to me. It's interesting. I, I don't know about you, Jeff. I, I'd put, if there's five tiers um, with five, fifth being like the worst, um, doesn't deserve a job and, and one being, you know, the elite of the elite, I'd put like guys in that category. I would put in there like Kyle Shanahan, um, yeah. Sean McVay, uh, you know, there might be a few others, but those guys, not many. not many. Like, I think those are kind of the top tier for me. I think you could, in some North Turner, you know, is, is done it enough different times. He's a little bit like the offensive version of Wade Phillips for me. Um, Andy Reed, Andy Reed, absolutely, yeah, perfect. Maybe, maybe Matt Nagy now, you know. Nagy's pushing that that one, isn't he? Like I yeah. think he's he's creative enough. Um, he's maximizing. But Shoddy for me is like in tier three. I think tier two is pretty generous. Yeah, I get that. I think that's totally fair. Um, but I think he's also doing what he's asked to do in a certain context. And so for me, it's kind of like if we're doing the quarterback thing, do you want to put Kirk Cousins in the second or the third tier? He's kind of a two and a half, right? Sort of, you can make the glass look half full or half empty. Um, <laughs> I I give Brian Schottenheimer Bennett for the doubt. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's fair. I, I have to ask you a wild card question here, and it's not about wild card in the playoffs. This is a rando. Um, so you mentioned the the Twitter reactions and how people freak out on, on Schottenheimer. Uh, so you probably get exposed to all the different fan bases. Compare and contrast Seahawks fan base, especially on Twitter, with other fan bases. What's the, what, what are they the same? Where are they different? <laughs> wow. That's a great question. Um, I don't know that I have a great answer for that. I mean... Do, 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 they, do they all blend together? Do you notice anything like that? that's more pronounced about Seahawks Twitter than about other fan bases? Seahawks Twitter could be more, more analytical Twitter. Uh-huh. Could be. I think it probably is. I have to be careful, though, because I sort of maintain my old lists that, that are heavy on a lot of Seahawks people that I've added, you know, the rest of the country. Um, I'm probably more familiar with the Seattle one because I've covered – the team so much um 
But I don't see, I mean, you you probably know that better than me. What do you think the big difference is between Seahawks fans and the others? I don't, I don't know that I, I can say. I mean, I, I have not moved on. <laughs> I'm happily like exactly where I want to be in the middle of all of it. So uh, I do follow some other people on other teams and, and other fan bases. And I've got to know folks, you know, the teams that we play more often, I have a better feel for. I know the Packers, uh, you know, Twitter, um, you know, pretty well. I know um, the Cowboys Twitter pretty well, the Broncos, uh, you know, some of those teams, the Panthers, <laughs> pretty good feel, Atlanta. You know, one thing I've done, though, is, you know, when I was a beat reporter, I had to be following Twitter all the time, you know, for the latest news and that sort of stuff. I'm able to be a little more selective with it now, and I'm not just always on it. I find it to be a little distracting or um, I just it's almost beneficial to sort of monitor from a distance, dive in, you know, and see what's around, but not just be constantly tracking it. It's been, that's been liberating for me, actually. <laughs> You're not alone. I've heard that from others. Yeah. Uh, so, so, Jeff, I, I kind of uh, jumped in there. You can get some other questions. Um, let me see here. Oh, yeah. you. Brian mentioned the uh, quarterback tiers article that always, always draws a lot of opinions, I imagine. you. Um, so one of the questions the Seahawks fans are looking at now is who they're going to play in the first round of the playoffs. Um, so it looks like it's going to be Dallas, most likely Dallas, very possibly Chicago. So we'll start with Dallas. What's your perception been of Dak Prescott this year? And has it changed, I guess, since the Amari Cooper trade? And Or what's the overall, I guess, perception of him inside the city and inside the league? Yep, um, pretty good. But when, you know, when the defense run game haven't been there, I think we're still not, you know, we're not, people aren't overly fearing them. I think you feel like you go into the game and, you know, you're not facing somebody who's going to, necessarily lead them back from a big deficit or put it on his shoulders that they have a certain way they want to play and uh, other ways may not be as available to them as, as consistently as they are for, for some other teams. So I think it's a good matchup for Seattle. You, you kind of know what type of game it's going to be. Dallas isn't going to run out on you 30 to nothing. It could be a lower scoring game if Seattle wanted to you know, play their style and Dallas played their style. It could be a one-score game after three quarters. You know, it could, you could easily see it being 17 to 10 or 17 to 13 going down the stretch and, and saying, okay, who can get that touchdown and impose their will in the fourth quarter? I don't think Seattle's afraid to play that way at all. You know, Dallas isn't either. Um, so I, I think if you're Seattle, you take your chances in that matchup. That's not one you're, you're running away from. When you, you you've been looking at games for so long, Mike. When you go to assess a matchup between two teams, what are the first few things you look at to determine which team you think is going to be the winner? Yeah, I think pass rush rotation is really important. You know, can you close out a game? Can you, uh, if your team gets the lead, you know, can you finish it? I think that's a huge one. I always look at the quarterbacks. Um, I look at is there more than one way you can win? You know, do you have the ability? You have a two-minute offense, two minutes in the game. Are we, if we're on defense, do we want you to have the ball because, because we think your quarterback's going to screw it up, or are we afraid? How are we playing at the end of each half against you? You know, are we just got to milk this clock because there's no way we want 
Tom Brady or Drew Brees or Andrew Luck to get the ball, or are we willing to take our chances? You know, I think those are um, some fundamentals that I look for in a team. I guess on the other side of the scale, I believe Brian mentioned that his preferred matchup was Mitch Trubisky and the Bears. I think because of Trubisky and his inexperience and up and down season. Is that how you look at it, or do you prefer Dallas still? Well, yes, in theory, but, you know, what comes along with Mitch Trubisky is Soldier Field and that Bear defense, which I think, even though Dallas has a good defense, I think the Bear defense – you know, leading the league in turnovers this year, truly elite, um, you know, Khalil Mack, I think Akeem Hicks is playing at that level. Um, there's a potentially more daunting element to it. I think when you go back over the years also, you know, I think that Andy Reid type offenses against Seattle, the jury's out on whether Seattle's done great in those, you know, um, I think a, a good defensive coach like Pete Carroll getting a second look at Mitch Trubisky and Nagy could be benef- could be better, could benefit more the defensive coach. I feel that way for Mike Zimmer the second time around. But I still feel like there's a level of creative scheming with, uh, you know, with Matt Nagy that may not be there in the Dallas matchup where suddenly you did everything to contain, but uh, Mitch Trubisky, you know, got some runs. They hit a couple play actions. Um, I don't think it's quite that simple, uh, especially when you figure where would you rather be? Would you rather be bad weather, maybe a sleet or rain when we're going to debate about how Russell Wilson plays when it's wet or those types of things, or just go play that controlled environment down in Dallas. Um, I don't know. I I might opt for Dallas. Yeah. I mean, Seahawks have had, uh, some bad playoff experiences in Chicago over the years. And um, Robbie Gold uh, comes to mind, um, taking a, a practice kick on a game-winning ex- uh, field goal before uh, the refs could stop him. Um, anyway, yeah, guy drives me crazy still. Anyway, uh, so, I mean, if you were to, if you were to prognosticate what you know you said you probably prefer Dallas in that in that uh, as a matchup for Seattle do you think that you would probably what are the odds you give me a percentage chance that the Seahawks could beat Dallas and what are the percentage chance you think that they could beat Chicago um I feel like it's 55 or 60 percent that they could beat Dallas mm. and more like a 50 50 matchup with Chicago or on the road, maybe a little less than that. You know, I think uh, we need to see how that goes on the road. Uh, That's a tough situation in the playoffs, the atmosphere, the, that defense playing off the energy, uh, the pass rush jump that you get, I think at home can be significant. So it's probably shifts to under 50%, you know, when you got to go to soldier field, maybe it's 40, 45. That makes me happy. I, I, I kind of was just talking to some folks in the chat. I I kind of, even with Dallas, I feel like I got the Seahawks at about, you know, 48% chance, like a little bit le- like, I think Dallas is a good team. They're playing well. They've got a good defense. They've picked it up on offense. They definitely are flawed and any home team in the playoffs is in good shape, but I like your, I like your 55 or 60 better than my 48 for sure. 
60 is probably too high, you know, but 55. I was just seeing what your reaction would be, how high I would go. No, <laughs> I give them a good chance against Dallas and uh, just have some more uncertainty questions about the the matchup with that defense in that environment. Yeah, yeah it feels it feels like um, I would put their chances against the Bears closer to 35 to 40. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, some of the differences, I mean, the, this first game, the, the first time they played earlier this year, Bobby Wagner and KJ Wright didn't play in that game. Um, now Earl Thomas did, but uh, you know Bobby Wagner and Earl and uh, KJ did not. Um, you also had Brandon Marshall playing in that game, and like there's there's some differences for sure in terms of, of and they certainly were running the offense completely differently. That, Russell threw a pick six in that game. Um, you know they've had five turnovers since that game, right? Is is that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, he threw a pick six in that game. He threw a pick six in the San Diego. Uh, San Diego yeah, San Diego game that one out to the flat. It's like the same play. Same basic mistake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I like to not see in that, my rule in life is uh, make new mistakes. Uh, but uh, that didn't happen so far on that one. But anyway, I I, I don't have – I think Matt Nagy deserves the respect he's been given, but I don't think the Bears have a lot of um, – weapons on offense. I think Tariq Cohen is their, probably their most dangerous weapon. And um, if it is bad weather, I think the Seahawks are one of the teams built for it. Yeah. Um, so it's really, it, it, it's an interesting matchup. But Jeff, where are you? We, we kind of gave our rough percentages. What, what's your rough percentage for those, those two? I'd say I'm about 40, 48 for Dallas. Oh, we're the same. Probably 30 for Chicago. Yeah, I love that. How as like a fan, you know exactly what forty-eight. You know, you're like forty-eight yeah. would stink for forty-six. It totally <laughs> is. <laughs> At the same time, I would probably give them twenty-eight percent against Kansas City this week. <laughs> yeah. You would have given them ninety percent against the 49ers and they lost. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that shows how much uh, my. Percentage I like the look of the team, though. I like the feel of the team. You know, I think the. I think there's a mojo with the team now. The Bears have that too. You know, I think the Bears really have a good. Good thing going. I think Nagy sort of harnessed that um, a, a positive energy. Not everybody really believes in that, but I think they do. I think it works for them. So it'd be, I think that would be a tough matchup. Well, so so here's – I don't know if you'll agree with this, uh, Mike. I'm curious. So I think Los Angeles – the Chargers, sorry, not the Chargers, the Rams. I think the Rams aren't built to win at all. I don't think they're going to do well in the playoffs. And I would welcome, I actually, Pete Carroll made a comment after their last game. The Seahawks have lost by two points and by five points to the to the Rams. In the last game, he's like, man, I hope we get another shot. My read was, I think Pete Carroll is zeroing in on McVay's offense, which is not complicated, but I, it sounds crazy because he scored a bunch of points against the Seahawks. But I think he's starting to figure out how he wants to play that team. And the Seahawks put up 270 yards rushing against that team. I actually, I probably would feel more confident about the Seahawks' chances of going to LA and winning a game there than I would about them going to Chicago and winning there. And oh, I totally. I mean, I think the the Rams are in a weird spot. You know, I, I think they have the Rams have been the poster team for the offensive uptick in the league this year. That's all driven on early downs. They're the team that has ridden that wave. They're they're like 100% 11 personnel in early downs and overall. Yet they have this formidable back that everyone wants to stop. 
and they just game the system by with early down play calling and early down passing. Uh, and the minute you get them into third down or they're behind or something, it feels like it changes. Now, they did a nice job coming back at New Orleans earlier in the season, but you take out Cooper Cup. Um, I don't think their offensive line is as good as advertised. I think they're an older group that has really benefited from the uncertainty and the play calling. And like I said, doing figuring things out on early downs. When the game gets hard for them, I I feel nervous for them. And I, I feel like the code's been cracked a little bit. I agree with you that Pete Carroll would love to take their chances against them. They're going to have to win a game probably to, to get to face them. But um, I, I would like their chances. That's the interesting thing. It's like if they can get out of the first round, let's just say the Rams are the second seed. If, if it fell for them to play the Rams, I think they would be licking their chops. Yeah, I mean, how how far realistically do you think the Seahawks can go in the playoffs? You know, probably, well, probably to the NFC Championship game is the realistic thing. Now, what, once you get there, you've got a chance to go to the Super Bowl. You know, I don't think there's any team that's totally flawless. You know, there's no team where Seattle's like completely overmatched. You know, I mean, the the thing about the Saints is they're missing something from their offense. You know, they've had some O-line injuries. They've got, it, it, you know, they, they could use another speed element on the offensive side. Now, their defense has played great, but Seattle will play a low-scoring game with you. You know, if, it, if the Saints aren't scoring, which they haven't been as much, they could have a chance in that game too. It's unrealistic. You're going to win all those games on the road. So to me, realistically, is you could get to the NFC Championship game. Hmm. What about you? Uh, yeah, I th- that's that feels right to me. I feel like that's their ceiling. Um, I, I think I, I think the Saints are, are in a class by themselves in the NFL in general, not just the NFC. I, I think that as far as a combination of the things that matter, that I believe matter for winning a championship in terms of elite quarterback play, um, you know, solid running game, solid offensive line, um, good enough defense. I don't think their defense is great, but I think it's good. Um, and they make some plays. They're just a well-balanced team and, and they're unlike the Rams, which the Rams, you know, are outsized on offense and are outsized on pass rush, which sounds like should be the perfect combination for this modern era but they're trash and defending the run and, and they give up a ton of points. And uh, I don't think their quarterback handles it well when pressure does reach him or when he ha- he's not a good third down passer on the plays where they don't get first downs on first or second, which is their norm. He struggles. So, you know, I don't believe in him. I don't believe in that team winning it. I think the chiefs, as much as I love watching that team and I have huge, huge respect for Mahomes. Yep. I think their defense is a fatal flaw. I don't see them progressing. I'm actually really interested to see, you know, what is ba- Baltimore's almost like the mirror image of the, the Seahawks and the other conference. Baltimore's got the better defense. The Seahawks have the better passing quarterback. You know, I'll be kind of curious to see how those two teams play out through the, the postseason. Yeah, they're not – I mean, no one no one's signing up to play Baltimore right now. You know, <laughs> it's a tough game. It is, and it's the same kind of basic approach that it's a point suppression approach. You're going to get a few possessions to make it matter, and you're going to have to do well. And um, you know they're going to keep running the ball and running the ball. And and uh, but yeah, I, I it's hard for me to think that uh, Lamar Jackson's going to make the big throw when he needs to. Um, you know, against one of the better teams. But 
Yeah, and do, do you – we're kind of going far afield now, but it feels a little bit like New England is, is on one hand, like their swan song, and maybe the, they're just not the team that they've been in the past. They haven't had that kind of season. The other hand, now they're at second seed and and they're they're pushing up there. So, like, what's your take on on uh, Mr. Brady and Belichick over there? I don't think they're as good, you know, as they've been at their best. I I, I feel like the AFC is more open. So I, I would normally just sign say, hey, sign them. They'll be in the AFC Championship game. I, I I feel like they're a team that you know if they have to go on the road may not win the game, but it was so huge for them to get in a position where, you know, they may have, they may be able to, they could potentially avoid that, <laughs> in which case they could get there. So that would be an amazing job by them because I just feel like, I feel like their team's not as good. Yeah, that's where I'm at. What do you like in the AFC? I think it's total, I, I think it's open. You know, I, I don't, I don't think necessarily that it's that Baltimore is going to go all the way. You know, I feel like the Chiefs are flawed. I feel like the Patriots have their flaws. So, you know, maybe by process of elimination, I don't know if you can hear my dogs. They're very excited right now. <laughs> um, must be somebody at the door. It's very exciting. But uh, I feel like it's open. I don't feel like there's a team that I want to just put all my money on. Yeah. It's funny. I'm going to call up our probabilities right now. I'm just curious. If I look at the AFC, this is the FBI you were talking about, the football power index. Okay, let's go to the AFC. And let's say making the Super Bowl. 44% Chiefs. That's still pretty high to me. 26% Patriots. All right, I'm going to tell you what I said maybe – Six weeks ago, I was asked who will go to the Super Bowl and win, and I said it would be the Chargers against the Saints. And I picked the Chargers to win it, but it was total, like, because it would be a cool narrative to me if Drew Brees got his Hall of Fame vindication, if he beat his old teammate Drew Brees. I sort of felt like the Saints might win it. So if you make me pick a team in the AFC, I'll probably pick the Chargers. I mean, I feel like, like I've mentioned the pass rush rotations to you as something that I think is huge in the playoffs. And if you go back to Seattle's history, remember the 2012 year when they lost at Atlanta? It was a really heartbreaking loss for Seattle fans. I was actually got home that weekend and my son just like totally down because one of them is a Seahawks fan. But they didn't have the pass rush rotation to finish the game. And I feel like the Chargers have the potential to have that. So uh, the Chiefs kind of do too. I just don't think the rest of their defense is strong enough. So – I guess as I look at it, the Chargers are probably that team that I like, even though they may be having that on the road. I guess speaking of the pass rush, we've been talking about it all year from a Seahawks perspective. Do you think the pass rush rotation for them with mostly just Clark and Reed is good enough to get them through on the road? I kind of don't. You know, I feel like it's good, but they need another guy. kind of felt that the whole year. And sure. – um, that, that's gone as, almost as expected, right? I mean, I think Frank Clark's played great. Um, Jerron Reed's had a really good season. There's been some other guys here or there, but you'd love to have to add one more guy in that to the, at that position to get you back. Remember when they 
you know, when they were able to get Averill and Bennett, it just puts you over the top. And when they lost Averill in that Super Bowl, if you, I know Jeremy Lane went out too, but Tom Brady's numbers are totally the opposite with Averill on and off the field. And I, I don't think they have that over the top rotation right now. They need one more guy maybe to get it. And once they have it, they could be on their way back to, you know, with continued development of other players in the defense to having the full formula. Yeah, that's been one of our biggest concerns all year. And the other big concern for us has been the safety play. So one guy we've talked about a lot on this show is Tedra Thompson. Uh, I don't know his health status heading into this week, but what's been your impression of his play? Yeah, you know, initially, I think there was initially some positives that, you know, hasn't been as good lately. Um, I think it's been more of a concern. Bradley McDougal's one of the best signings of not a huge money signing that the Seahawks have had had in recent memory you know yeah, uh, the first time and the re-sign what an awesome signing i think he's just saved their butt so many times but you would like to probably get some better overall play uh, at that position and every time that he's mcdougall's rumored to be out i feel like uh-oh you know it could just could all go now yeah i guess we were mentioned earlier before about how Seahawks Twitter can be unique. And the one area with you, I imagine they're unique is the defensiveness over Russell Wilson's yearly ranking in your article. Yeah. I imagine you get a lot of interesting response to that. Yeah. The number one super fans, Brock Heard, though. I love going with Brock. Like, oh, yeah. Stark doesn't even bring it up to me because he thinks it's so preposterous that anybody would not have him in the Hall of Fame. They, they, they think he should be playing with a gold jacket on right now over his shoulder pads, right? Uh, <laughs> So the thing with Russell is he's he's either a one or he's right on the cusp of the one. And the thing that's been held against him is nothing of his fault. It's just really, for the most part, every year until this year, they've had a great defense, which makes it way easier. If you look at how many points they have to score to win, it's totally lower than Andrew Lux by like a touchdown for some of the years. You know, that's a huge difference. Drew Brees is there this year. They have a good defense. Drew Brees has to score 21 points a game. It's a completely different thing. And now this year, they don't have a defense, and he's doing great. But they're handing it off all the time, too. So I think him getting them to the playoffs this year without having a good defense, with all those leaders leading the defense, I think is going to nudge him into the top tier in a broader perception. There's There's been people who already put him there. I think he's incredibly high, highly respected. Um, but... He still hasn't had those years like those guys who are in the one every year where they don't have a defense or a run game. Now, when Drew Brees didn't have a defense or run game, he played lights out to get him to seven and nine, you know, uh, played amazing, but they would never be worse than seven and nine. Yeah. When Matt Ryan's had a terrible defense, they can go to six and 10, right? They can go to, they went to four and 12 one year, uh, which to me shows that he shouldn't, I don't think he should be above Russell. I think he should be in that solid two. Um, range, whereas Russell's either a one or at the bottom of one. Uh, if you want to be stubborn and put him at the top of two, fine. But I think he's ascending. I think this year helps him. Um, the only thing you can hold against him now is that they hand it off on 104% of plays. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there, so I'll clue you into a, a, a debate that's been going on um, different parts of Seahawks fandom. And there's one side that believes that Russell is succeeding in spite of the scheme that, 
you know, he should be throwing the ball much more often that the Seahawks are incredibly efficient when he's passing and they should be passing more. And that's, there's a lot of data to back that up. There's another side that believes that Russell is best suited for the scheme he's in right now, that he is a deep passer. He's great off play action. He is great at protecting the ball. um, And he is not as great in high volume situations. He's not as great in uh, short, short passing and some of these, you know, uh, some of these other options, or he's not as good. Um, Where do you fall on that? I mean, what's, what's your instinct tell you? I lean towards more of the second category that I do think he is best in some of this, you call it managed or whatever. Um, But I also think that they could uh, definitely open it up more and he could have more production. I think there there's, I don't think he's fully maxed out in this offense. I think he could have even better numbers if they opened it up a little more. To me, there's no question that, Sometimes he can't see things as well as he could if he were taller. I, I believe that's true. You know, um, so, sometimes that um, is a factor. So how he's used, I do think, is important. I, I don't think that you would necessarily throw him in the exact offense of another quarterback and it would be the best thing for him. But I do think you could open it up more and he could have even better numbers um, if that's what you were going for. I just don't think that's... They're fl- that's not what they're doing at all. They're not the team like, like the Saints. You know, if the Saints are down uh, seven touchdowns with 38 seconds left, they're going to try to get 10 more points. That's the Saints. Their mindset. They care if they have 350 yards or 320 yards passing. Pete doesn't care. It shows in how they play the game. There's yards and probably some points out there that Russell could have, in my opinion. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you more about that another time. But um, uh, want to respect your your time. It's been great having you. Um, one one segment that we like to do in this era of uh, people who only put their their favorite foot forward and their their best their best look on Instagram. Um, we like to do a segment called "What I Got Wrong." And what, where I was wrong is another way to think about it. So it can be something that you were wrong about the season. It can be something you're wrong about the Seahawks. It can be something you're wrong about a specific player. Yep. But um, we'll go first and give you some time to think about it. I'm going to uh, call up all the teams here, then it helps me. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, um, you know, we'll start transitioning and talk a little bit about the Chiefs game next uh, from, from this past week and the Cardinals game coming up um, in a second. But – what did you get wrong? I didn't think there was a chance Seattle would win that game on Sunday. I know you showed the tail of the tape. There was a schematic way that Seattle could attack the Chiefs. But when I saw that injury list coming out in the middle of the week, I didn't think there was a chance when I saw that. And then when Sweezy went down, I was terrified. And the fact they were able to pull that game out and Russell was able to pull, out-duel Mahomes, I, I didn't see that happening. I said 28% earlier. It might have been lower in my mind once I saw the injuries. And I, I just, even though it was at home I and in prime time, I thought they'd lose 100%. Yeah, I think, I think what I got wrong was um, I did not think that they would be able to win a shootout like that in a game where Sweezy and Effetti were out. 
and they had to put not just Posick in, but bring in an injured fluker and um, who probably won't play this this coming week. I mean, I didn't think they were set up for that. So uh, I definitely I was surprised. I thought there was a way the Seahawks could win that game. I had predicted they would win 37-31, so I clearly was wrong about that, um, uh, at least by a point. So, um, but yeah, I, I was surprised. I was surprised that the Seahawks were able to to keep the the scoring up. And I guess I would also say I was surprised and, and was wrong. Seahawks got a three and out on the first drive, the first series uh, from, from for Kansas City. I didn't know that Kansas City would punt that entire game. I mean, I, I was surprised that Kansas City had to punt at all. And the Seahawks defense actually had a few stops um, in that game, and that that was a pretty big surprise. And I will say another thing I got wrong, I was certain Tyreek Hill against this secondary that's been giving up explosive plays left and right would put up a big game. He was pretty quiet by Tyreek Hill um, uh, perspectives, and he had that one longish catch, but nothing over the top, nothing where he was behind the defense and running straight toward the end zone. And that was a big surprise. I certainly expected to see at least one, maybe a couple of those in this game. How about you, Mike? Give well, those are micro. So to me, I'll say two things. One, I, I totally was wrong on this team in terms of that DJ Fluker would be a good signing that um, I know he's missed a few games, but I don't care. I mean, they're going to hold him out probably this last game just to make sure he's ready for the playoffs, but he has been like a major plus to the identity of the team, the locker room, the, the offensive line would become a positive identity for this team. <laughs> I did not think that was going to happen. So while I did think having healthy backs, I thought Sol I knew Solari's a good coach, um, but you can only do so much. Solari was with the Giants the last couple of years. I mean, no one was talking about their offensive line improving. You can only do so much. So the fact that that like weeks would go by and Effetti's name wouldn't be brought up in a negative way, um, that they could turn their number one obvious weakness, even to people that are like. You don't even have to be a personnel evaluator. Just everyone in the world who has two eyes and has watched the football game knows that was going to be a weakness of the team. For them to turn it almost into a strength of how they want to play is totally unanticipated to me. I feel great for Jermaine Effetti. I, I, I hate when players are, like, castigated so personally by people on Twitter. It really, really bothers me. I wouldn't have an account if I were a player because I think I, it would just drive me, you know, you would be in counseling. And so I feel great for him that he's been able to sort of survive the season and they're having fun on that side of the ball. My micro concern or the thing I was wrong about on the Kansas City game was early in the week, they asked me to pick an upset and I actually picked Seattle. And then I felt horrible about it all week. I was like, shoot, you know, they're, they're in trouble. This defense is going to really give up a ton of points. But you know, McDougal supposedly was he go, was he rumored to be like going overseas? I'm like, they're going to give up. They they could lose this by two touchdowns going away. I thought I was going to look and that, that like what I'm sensitive to no longer being a Seahawk reporter is oh Seattle guy picking the Seahawks. You know you're a homer. When I covered the team, people thought I was too negative on the team. But now <laughs> that I used to cover the team. You know, you, you fall into that. Anything you say positive about it from a national perspective, oh, the Seattle guy. 
but they actually won the game. And so I almost can't take credit for it because by the end of the week, I really thought they were in trouble. <laughs> I think uh, you are where a lot of us have been, Mike. And, and we really uh, not only appreciate your humility, which is an important part of this show, um, but taking some time, man, you just stayed with us for an hour. Um, this is, this is gold for us. Uh, I know people are loving it on the chat. Uh, all the insights. It's like old time. If you got anything else, roll, roll. I'm not sitting here. There's no car idling. So if you got one more thing or whatever, do we miss anything? Well, we're going to be going on for probably another half an hour. We're going to talk about the chiefs game. We're going to keep going. You're welcome to stick around. Uh, I'm just like, seeing what's on my list here. Let's see. Uh, you're welcome to leave. I, I'm giving you the out. You, you I'll tell you my. So, you know, uh, there's one thing I think is interesting that we didn't talk about, which is right. as part of this formula for winning, they've started to get turnovers. And I think that's one thing in the playoffs when you play the good quarterbacks is you don't get them. Sometimes they go away. So can you win a game when they when that turnover margin's even? I think when you're trying to run the ball and play this formula. When you don't, you know, they were plus two on Kansas City, right? They were. Play your plus two and you're really holding on to barely win. So Yeah, I think that's true. It's an interesting part of the Seahawks formula for, for the turnovers is that they're about to tie the record for the fewest turnovers, like giveaways in a season. Um, you know, they're going to tie two teams. I can't remember which two teams. Well, England, I believe, had 10 in 2010, and that's what they have now. That's what they have now. If they don't give one up on, on Sunday, that's a key piece. They, they can control that a little bit more. Yep. Um, as far as the takeaways, I agree with you. They are up in both, you know, uh, you know fumble force and, and interceptions per drop back uh, relative to what they've been in, in the recent years. And I don't know. A lot of some of that came early when Earl was there. Earl still is tied for the team lead in interceptions with three, um, even though he hasn't played for a long time. So I, I do think that's a little bit suspect that they'll be able to force them. I will tell you though, Mike, I found a stat today as far as fumble luck goes. One of the craziest things LA Rams, they have recovered 82% of their opponent fumbles this year. The next closest is like 54 or 52. Somebody smart, and I, I apologize who it was, because I'm not. I'm trying not to be on Twitter all the time, but I saw the mention. So I had a thing where, like, the Seahawks have five turnovers from game number three to fifteen. Okay, that's five, and so I was. That's a really low number. I forgot they had five in the first two games. So I went on to Pro Football Reference and looked it up. It's an NFL record since at least 1940. And remember, the game, the seasons weren't even as long then. Yeah, but. From the game number three to 15, five is the lowest of any team since 1940, at least. Um, so somebody replied to that, though, that had Seattle recovered 10 of 12, or does Seattle have a high recovery rate that's not sustainable? Recovering of their own? Of their own or others? Do, what would the number be? Because I, I, think, I think I can look it up real quick. I think the Seahawks might have a high recovery rate of their own fumbles. That's right. sounds about right. Like to me, <laughs> recovering uh, recovering opponent fumbles at an eighty two percent rate for me is like I don't know if that's because a lot of them are being forced by Aaron Donald and you know they're in some kind of way where the they're actually able to anticipate where the fumble is or if it's just complete random luck that's gonna 
regress. Um, here, I'll be able to tell you. In a oh second. yeah, I want to see that too. See, I I feel like more of the more of the sack fumbles are really just fumble forcings. You know, you know where they're they're swiping down with the hand now. Yes. So here's the numbers for giveaway for for your recovering your own fumbles. This is the the, the league leaders. Denver's number one at seventy eight point six percent. Seattle is number two at seventy seven point eight percent. Okay. Um, interestingly, last year the Seahawks were seventy two percent in recovery. Uh, let's see, 2016, they were 73% in recovery. 2015, uh, they were 58. So in the last three years, they've recovered 72% or more of their fumbles. So, so my, 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 what I would look at on that, because here's what it feels like to me. Russell's really aware, and he's quick to get on that ball for a quarterback. So, you know, they're, they're not interviewing him after the Super Bowl asking why he didn't recover the fumble like they were on Cam Newton. He'll go <laughs> get that ball. And he, didn't he get one the other night? Did he get one that night or uh, a couple games ago? Lockett, Lockett fumbled one. Yeah, see how many of them are quarterback ones? That'd be a cool thing. Maybe Russell's a tier one fumble recoverer. Uh, <laughs> but but oh, now my. he seems good at it. He seems good at it. I'll, I'd be curious to know the fumble breakdown. That's really that. That's a C, in Seahawks insider blog post if I were still doing. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. I, I'm not a Carolina game, right? What's that, Jeff? A Carolina game, didn't they put like force like five or six fumbles and recover right. none of them? And didn't get them. That yeah, didn't get any of them. But here's the thing, guys. I would have thought because of that, the Seahawks would be way down on the list in terms of recovering opponents' fumbles. Yeah. Seahawks are fifth in the NFL. Oh. They, they've recovered 52%, even with going 0 for 5 in that Carolina game. Um, but the Rams up there at 85%. I mean, that's. The next closest is New Orleans at 54.5. There's something weird going on there. Like, I don't know. Last year, the Rams had Aaron Donald, and they recovered 43.5% of opponent fumbles. So something's going on there this year. Weird. I think you've clearly shown that the Rams' percentage will regress while Seattle's will not. Yeah. (laughs) All right. You guys can kick me out. All right, Mike, it's been great. Thank you so much. And uh, keep keep doing what you've been doing. We'll keep reading, all right? All right. Hey, thanks. Thanks. thanks Mike. Mike Sando, ESPN. You can find him at uh, at Sando, capital ESPN. Um, man, Jeff, that was that was great stuff, right? Yeah, I didn't realize how far you guys went back. And I, I live in Toronto, right? There's not a lot of Seahawks fans I know. There's not a lot of guys I can talk to. I've actually made some Seahawks friends through. And I was Mike's one of the first guys I read and really fell for like the Seahawks guy, the voice of reason. And he, he was just different than everyone else. And I used to read Seahawks.net. I don't know if you ever read that site. Oh yeah. Still going strong. I think Doug Farrar started on there. And uh it's just cool talking to Mike. He's been the OG is a perfect name for him. Like the guy I grew up reading on Seahawks, and he was awesome. Yeah, I, I part of what got me starting to write um, a while ago was just not finding anyone that was going beyond the superficial, like the cutting up the quotes from a press conference. And uh, I don't want to speak too badly about anybody, but I mean, the guy that followed um, Mike was was not as good. The, the couple of guys that followed Mike were not as good. Eric Williams was pretty good, but um yeah, it, it Mike just was able to actually 
opened my eyes to new ways to look at football that made it like made more sense. It was a logical, analytical approach to why things were happening the way they were. And I didn't want to just hear the player and the coach's reasons. I wanted to understand like, what's, what are they not telling us? And how can I look at the game a little bit differently and learn a little bit more and maybe figure out how to anticipate what's going to happen so I can like comfort myself, <laughs> embrace myself and know when a better chance when they're going to win or when they're going to lose. So he's been a huge influence for me. Uh, great guy and, and uh, really, really nice of him to spend uh, an hour plus. I think I think he was having fun. I think he was tempted to stay on until he told him for another half an hour. Yeah, that was awesome. So we've got man, where do you want to start? Where should we start? You, you take us from here. I, I don't think we've dug enough into that Chiefs game because that game oh. was freaking awesome. That was one of the best football games I've seen Seattle just been involved with in a long time. Just Russell and Mahomes and I said I said earlier, I didn't think they had a chance of winning that game when I saw the injury report and I knew Posick was going to have to start. And Fetty was out. I didn't think there was a chance. And with that defense, with safety issues, and KJ Wright coming back, and there were so many guys I want to shout out. I don't know if you want me to go through a list right now. but Yeah, you go for it, dude. Run okay, out. Man. We, we haven't dug into this, but – we talked about Russell, obviously. Russell was incredible. That's maybe the best game he's ever played, arguably going head-to-head with Mahomes on that stage in a playoff-clinching scenario. Arguably the best game he's ever played. Doug Baldwin, man, coming off that Niners game, he was he's had such a tough season, banged up, and he was incredible. He was getting deep down the field. He was intermediate. He was clearing space. Doug Baldwin was awesome. Akeem King was freaking mm. awesome in that game. He was a guy I hated in the preseason as a cornerback. I never understood what they saw in him. We spent a lot of time bagging on him. Travis Kelsey was a guy who spooked me going into this game. I think I said in our show last week, I didn't see how they'd cover him after what George Kittle did. Akeem King one-on-one with Kelsey. It was fantastic. Kelsey was barely a factor in the game. And Deion Jordan is another one. I think Josh mentioned Deion Jordan as a guy who like barely as a guy he was wrong about. Deion Jordan made a sack early in the game. He forced the fumble. He was awesome. And Dwayne Brown's a guy we just don't talk about enough. Oh, man. Dwayne Brown is awesome. Like, the outside rusher in that game was not a factor at all. And all year, Dwayne Brown's been fantastic. He's given up a couple sacks, but we just don't talk about him enough. He was great. Who else did I have? Uh, Chris Carson. I don't know if you guys saw Brian Baldinger's little cut up on him this week. We, me and Brian both love Chris Carson. We've been that was the thing that made us both mad all year, and he just keeps getting better and better and better. And even with the offensive line that had Fluker on one leg and Posick and some right tackle who played a snap I'd never even heard of. I don't know if Pete's heard of him. Carson was awesome. So all that that game was just incredible. Yeah, I, I'm going to add a few to that list. Even I mean, uh, George Fant at right tackle, yeah. awesome. I mean he. I think he's better than Jermaine Effetti at right tackle. And I'm sticking with my prediction. If Effetti's practicing this week, Fluker's not. I think we're going to see Fan at right tackle and Effetti at right guard. And I think it's going to be a really interesting question because Effetti's coming up. This is his – next year's his fourth year. Is that right? Like, or, Yeah. And then after that, he'll be a, a free agent. So 
they've got to make a decision on what they're going to do with him. I do not think they're going to give him a fifth year option. That would shock me if they do. And I think if they can get a look at him at right guard and Fran at right tackle, I think that could be their right side potentially. And if not, then get him the hell out of there. Like, I think you don't resign him after the year. Uh, you know, I, I think he's been okay this year. I don't think he's great. And for all the people that want the Seahawks to pass more often, have higher volume numbers of passes, I think a is a key reason why they haven't, because I don't believe they think they can hold up. And that's the one of the quietest stories of this season. The Seahawks are, let me double check. I was just doing tail of the tape today. Uh, Seahawks are 29th in the NFL in sack rate, like yeah. surrendered. Like when they drop back, I mean, Russell's near the top of the amount of sacks he's taken his career while having some of the lowest amount of pass attempts. So the pass protection's not been great other than, you know, a few folks, but definitely the right side has been an issue. Um, so anyway, I'm really interested to see a Fetty slide in. Um, and I thought Shaquille Griffin played another yeah, good game. Good one. He, he had a breakup early on on a deep pass from, from Mahomes. Um, that was nice to see Trey Flowers fumble recovery. That was huge on Lockett's um, punt return, like first first drive, first uh, return. That could have been a difference in the game. So, um, yeah, I mean, those guys stood out to me. I think a couple things that really jumped out about that game that I don't know if people know, unless you follow me on Twitter and you read all my Sunday night stats, but the Seahawks – during the Pete Carroll era in games where the opponent scores 31 points or more, I know it's a random number, but 31 points or more, they were one and 20, one and 20. The one win was last year against the Texans when they won 41 to 38 against Deshaun Watson. So this was the second time they're now two and 20. Um, that's how rare this game was. Um, people bring up the Steelers game. The Steelers scored 30, not 31. But even if you include that, it's, you know, <laughs> it's not a good record. So this is not the type of game that Pete Carroll's teams usually win. They found a way to win it. Um, who would have thought that taking, you know, taking that break after the two special team snaps would fuel Chris Carson all the way to a thousand yards? Um, he now is... In the first 17 starts of a career for a running back in Seahawks history, he's number two in rushing yards. He's like 150 yards behind Kurt Warner in his first 17 games. I mean, some really heady stuff um, going on there. And Russell's sitting there at, I think, career high in touchdowns, or tied for his career high in passing touchdowns, highest touchdown rate, lowest interception rate, um, highest passer rating, like he's he's knocking it out. And um, really, when I when I go through Jeff and I really explore, like what's the difference between this team and some of the you know teams that have won in the past in terms of identity? One of the big ones is explosive plays allowed on defense. Um, this Seahawks offense is actually doing amazing when it comes to explosive plays. Let me see if I can find it real quick. I want to say, uh, give me one second. Um, I want to say they had 13 in this last game, which, let me double check. Yep. 
They had 13 explosive plays in this last game that tied their season high. The last time they had it was when they uh, played against the Rams in LA. Um, but they're also just allowing a lot. They allowed 11. They allowed nine the week before in San Francisco. They allowed 11 against Carolina. They allowed 10 against the Rams in LA. They get allowed 11 against the Chargers. They allowed 15 against the Rams at home. They allowed 10 in Denver back in the first week. So like this defense has been really struggling to stop explosive plays. And that happened again here. There was 11 of them from the chiefs, but the Seahawks offense was good enough to win. So uh, one of the more fun games I've definitely watched. And <laughs> uh, I was not in there in person. One of the first games I've willingly missed in uh, since 97, when I bought my ticket, my season tickets. One thing I specifically liked about this game was from Pete Carroll. And I know he, he admitted this later is on that last drive where they, where they hit that locket deep ball and they hit that Baldwin crazy catch with the one hand. Pete said he made a note to shoddy at that moment where they had to get aggressive because in those situations, in the two Rams games, the first Rams game specifically, they went super conservative when they were pushing to get the, like close out that game. And they weren't able to get out of that. Like they had a penalty and they were trying to run the ball. The fact that they went to deep shots there and went super aggressive, that was a big sign of progress for me because that hurt them in those comeback attempts earlier. And to me, that was a huge sign. That's a great point. Yeah. I I think he said it on Brock and Salk's show or in his press conference, but he's, he said he made a note to Shai, don't hold back. In that first Rams game, they probably should have won. That's what they did. And that deep ball to lock it was insane. <laughs> really, it just sums up all year. We just keep talking about how much fun this team is and like how proud we are that this team made that turn so fast. This game kind of capped off the whole thing, the fact that they clinched the playoffs, they beat one of the these progressive teams, and they were pretty much in control the whole game. Yeah, I you're talking about the, the locket catch made me um think about the Cable Thanos video this week. Uh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> well I, I like so I was down in Cannon Beach with my family and uh, Josh sent us the video so we could upload it on YouTube and, and Facebook and other places while he uploaded it on Twitter. And we had a little snafu before Josh could get it up. But any event, um, my son got to see it over my shoulder before the rest of the world. And um, <laughs> when he had uh, the ball bounce off the moon, uh, I mean, that was one of like four or five, like, just laugh out loud moments. That guy, uh, Josh, is uh, he's on fire. That guy's got Twitter by the by the finger, man. Yeah, he's got Russell Wilson's here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. It's true. Um, so, what do you take? Do you take anything from that Chiefs game other than it was fun? Yeah, that they can compete with anyone, and we saw it all year with the Rams and. Mike mentioned that they're going to have to play against these elite quarterbacks in the playoffs. The thing about the NFC is there isn't that many of them. It's Breeze, Goff, Dak, Trubisky, and maybe Kirk Cousins. So if they can avoid Drew Breeze, they might not have to play any of these elite quarterbacks. The fact that they're able to beat a Mahomes, that gives me a lot more optimism that they can maybe compete with the Saints in a game earlier in this year, I probably would have said they'd have no freaking chance. Yeah. I mean, I, 
I am pretty concerned about the Seahawks defense. I will tell you. Yeah. Like I, I, <laughs> I had a poll that I took before they started, before they played Detroit. Um, you know, I think the Seahawks defense was top five in the NFL in points allowed. Everyone was feeling pretty good about the Seahawks defense. And I was like, I'm going to take this poll right now because I think the Seahawks are going straight down <laughs> with this next stretch. And they, then the Detroit game came. First of all, everyone like 88% said they thought the Seahawks defense was good. And I voted no. I, I'm good. Well, that was definitely a no for me. And then the Detroit game, they were good. Like, I was like, oh man, like, okay, maybe I was wrong. Then it was downhill pretty much from there. And I'm pretty sure the Seahawks are one of the bottom five defenses, maybe bottom 10, if I'm being generous, in the NFL right now. I, I think they're really, they're not very good. And I, I think that good offenses are going to continue to to find ways because I think the talent level is just low. I think Pete Carroll, one of the things we didn't talk about with, with the uh, Chiefs game, they had a brilliant defensive approach in that game like there's the only way to explain the lack of explosive over the top plays is that they came in with a plan and Pete Carroll talked about it he said they knowingly knowingly gave up run um, numbers because they wanted to make sure that Kansas City was not going over the top and that was nice to hear it was nice to hear that Pete's doing that Pete is the only, you know, reason to have hope that the Seahawks in the playoffs can scheme their way through um, some of these games. And I don't have a ton of respect for the Dallas offense or the Chicago offense. Mm-hmm. So let's let's roll the dice. I, I don't. I won't go in afraid of any of those teams. Yeah, well, we're on the same page there because we've been battling with Evan all year about and Nathan about. Pete Carroll all year and there they've wondered why the defense hasn't played well if that's a specialty and pretty much all year me and you have kept coming back to the point that their talent is pretty bad and seeing KJ right out there it was very nice considering how bad Austin Kletra was the week before and we crushed Tedrick Thompson last week not having him on the field was kind of nice you know he'll play I like that. And they, yeah, they still don't have the pass rush. Their secondary is pretty weak. They don't have that great player outside of Bobby Wagner and Frank. And Jaron's been great all year. But yeah, they're working with a lot of replacement level talent throughout the defense. And, but as I said, they don't. Pl- they might not play a great offense, and they might not have to worry about that. Yeah, I mean. Uh, I Jason Garrett is not a coach that intimidates me in any in any situation and uh yeah we'll see I mean there, there's a lot of differences between from the first time but we'll have time to get into that game in depth next week assuming that's where things end up um you know Seahawks have to finish off this week playing a Cardinals team that has one of the three worst offenses in history according to football outsiders literally like number one was like the 2002 Texans and number two was the 92 Seahawks. Wow. So those of you remember that team. Um, and then number three is this Cardinals. Jeff, when I detailed the tape today, 
This is what it – I want to read this to you. This is just – I blew my mind. This is Cardinals offense. Their rank in the league in these categories. Points. Points scored. 32nd. Yards. 32nd. Yards per play. 32nd. Third down percentage. 32nd. Rush yards. 32nd. Yards per rush. 32nd. Pass yards. 32nd. Yards per attempt. 32nd. Oh my God. Explosive passes. 32nd. Explosive rushes. 32nd. I mean, completion interception rate are like relatively good at that. They're 30th. Like, they're not like kind of bad. They are like unbelievably bad. And yet, Josh Rosen's best game as a pro came against the Seahawks. <laughs> so. Uh, who knows? I mean, Arizona has certainly pissed in our Cheerios, uh, in past years. Yeah. The Cardinals are basically what the Seahawks offense would have looked like in the last few years. If they had a non-mobile quarterback behind their offensive line is remarkably bad. Yeah. And they're, I think they're on their like fifth string all left tackle this week. Josh Rosen hasn't shown much behind that offensive line outside of Larry Fitzgerald. There's not a lot of passing weapons. Yeah, it's the 2002 Texans were an expansion team. You know, I think David Carr was the quarterback, and I think he took like 78 sacks or something on that team. So that the fact that they're compared to them and the 92 Seahawks, that's remarkably bad. I read your article today. I was stunned. I did not know the extent of how bad their numbers were. Yeah, it, it shocked me. It shocked me. I mean, I'm curious uh, what your feeling is about playing playing guys that are injured like let's go through a few names like pete said that we don't sit guys because we want to make sure we stay on our edge we're going to go out there and try to win i get it and there's only so many guys you can sit anyway but where i think this comes into play is a few places one you got some guys that are injured and you can either choose to take a week or not we have absolutely seen pete take a week um, for, for guys during the middle of the season um, to be protecting injuries. So tell me where you are on DJ Fluker. Does he play or not? No, you have to sit him. Talk to me about Bradley McDougal. I would sit him, but me and Pete view the world very differently. I, that's all right. So let's, let's go what you would do, and then okay. – and, and I then, would sit him, but I don't – I'd rather him rest his knee, and I don't think there's a receiver on this team that you need to use McDougal for this week. What about uh, Jaron Reed? It's hard to say without knowing the extent of what he's going through, but I would play him for the first half, and if things get out of hand, then I would sit him. Uh, what about... So Sweezy seems like he's gonna miss for sure. He's probably not gonna play. Um, what about Chris Carson? How do you handle Chris Carson this week? I would give him some carries just to keep his flow going, but he did look a little when he went to the sideline a couple times. And if you're trying to work Penny back in, it's not a bad idea to give Penny a bunch of carries and get his confidence up before the playoffs. So I would play him in a very limited role, maybe play him in the first quarter. And yeah, him. people probably or some 
probably forget, but um, Carson missed the first game against Arizona, and the Seahawks went for 171 with Davis and Penny running all over them. The Cardinals are the 32nd run defense in the NFL, so it's a good <laughs> it's a good matchup for the number one rush offense. Um, so maybe you don't need Carson. Um, Do you disagree with any of those? No, I mean, I, I think Carson – I think Carson gets a few reps. I, I don't think they sit him. I think he gets some reps, but I think maybe he doesn't play after halftime uh, yeah. or, or play sparingly. Um, you know, I think Bradley McDougal probably plays, is my guess. And maybe that, you know, maybe if anything, they rest him toward the end of the game. Um, and yeah, I definitely with you on the penny stuff. He's he's fully practicing. He looks like he's definitely going to play. I would give him reps. Um, I'd love to see. I've been saying it. I'd love to see McKissick get more reps. He's had two chances that I've seen so far. One in San Francisco where he made a game changing play that got called back because of a penalty as a receiver out of the backfield, and the next was. A six-yard nice run for a first down near the goal line. We haven't seen him since. I'm. I don't think the guy is great, but I think he's significantly more explosive than Mike Davis. And I think you've got Rashad Penny and and Chris Carson to give you those kind of reps. I don't know why why they wouldn't try a change of pace um, with McKissick over someone like. I mean. Mike Sando earlier was talking about 11 personnel and how you have these eligible receivers and how people are going to the Camaras and the, the Kareem hunts and those guys, McKissick's the closest thing we got on this roster other than Procise, who's on IR. So I, I just, it, it, that part's going to keep being grinding my gears until uh, I see them utilize him a little bit more. Yeah. There's two things that drove me a little nuts in that game. One of them was Mike Davis the usage of him. Every time Carson seemed to get going near the red zone, they'd pull him and stall whenever Mike Davis came in. And two, that two-minute drill at the end of the half, again, Schottenheimer can't figure out that two-minute drill. And But I don't understand why they use Mike Davis there and not McKissick. Yeah. Um, sorry, I responded to someone in the chat. But uh, the two-minute drill just – Mike Sando was higher on Sean Iron than I thought he'd be. I think Mike was being a little bit generous in a lot of his stuff tonight. He was, uh, I think he was uh, catering to Seahawks uh, fans. But, yeah, look, you and I spent ridiculous amounts of time at this point um, analyzing this team and looking into detail. So I think we see the, the flaws. I thought one of the things Mike really explained well is the coach of the year piece. I think if you really do look at the Seahawks and how they've kind of crept along, it isn't as impressive as it feels, um, but it's also just it's convenient considering that so many people expected such so little from this team. And and uh, uh, anyway, it's I don't really care whether they win coach of the year. I mean, I do, but I, I care for from just. You know, fairness sake, but um it's just been great. It's been great. I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be the last home game of the season, most likely. And, um, you know, one thing I would just encourage all the fans to do, I, I don't know, like as much as, as much fun as this season has been, 
we have not done a lot of reflection about who's going to be back next year, like how the team's going to evolve. Um, I just feel like this team could look really different next year. You know, I, I've talked to you about I'm not sure Fluker's going to get re-signed. As much as we love him, I could see a lot of situations where a super injured right guard that could potentially be replaced by Jordan Simmons and Jermaine Effetti or others. Maybe they don't. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with J.R. Sweezy. Like, he's on a one-year deal. Um, I don't think we really know what's going to happen with KJ. Like, um, I don't think we know what's going to happen with Doug. I know people think that's crazy, but I just get this impression that he's his heart's not in it the way it used to be. And I just wouldn't – of all the people that would walk away from money, it would be him. So, like – I would just encourage all the fans out there that are going to this game or watching this game, really like think about it like your last chance to cheer on these guys and give, you know, make sure to cheer them in introductions and cheer them when they make plays and, and just appreciate them while they're here. Cause I think the team could look considerably different next year. Yeah, that's a great point. And I imagine a lot of fans just are looking at this game sort of like a preseason game. And they probably shouldn't. The last home game probably of the year. And it might be a very meaningful one, depending on what happens with that Vikings-Bears game. So, yeah, that's a good point that no one – I really haven't thought about. And I bet a lot of fans haven't thought about. Yeah. Well, anything else you want to cover before we wrap it up? Yeah. I was especially disappointed about one thing. I logged on to Twitter the other day. And after months of me and you fighting with Evan, I saw an admission – that in a heated debate with a friend completely flipped his view of Pete Carroll. And the reasons he listed were the exact reasons that me and you have been saying for months. <laughs> and now all of a sudden he gets a contract extension and Evan loves him. I don't think that's really insane. I don't think Evan loves him. I, 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 I will find out more detail tomorrow over Matador Nachos, but that was actually my number one topic to cover with him before I saw his tweet. Even I was like, I was going to try to get to the bottom. Like, what is it? Like, you don't like Pete Carroll. Why? Um, this is not this is not a logic-based argument. Um, so I will find out and I will share. You know, yeah. and Evan will, will say whatever he's going to say. Evan's also, he is not somebody that is uh, particularly sticky with his takes. I mean, he he's okay flipping from tomorrow to the next day, you know. Um but even when he flipped on Carroll, it was it seemed through gritted teeth. I, I I still think that he believes Carroll's the wrong guy for this team and wrong guy for Russell. And um, man, we could go back into that whole, yeah, yeah. whole thing. But but yeah, that that did make me laugh, and I chose not to give him shit about it. So it's funny. I'm reading this. Do you know Mike Lombardi, the uh, the old executive? Yeah, and I bought his book. I listened to his podcast. He has this one section. One of the first chapters is about like how to hire a head coach in the NFL, and it's about all these qualities that the good teams look for. And like, it's basically describing Pete. It's pretty funny. And he talks. It's like the first thing. Then we don't even talk about this. Is like the first thing you look for is leadership. Like we never even mentioned that once on our show. Like how important just general leadership is as a head coach. And he, he goes into the story about how in 1996, he was asked to like recommend five head coaches. And one of the guys he actually mentioned, along with like Belichick, 
and Saban, who actually got like laughed at, was Pete. So it's kind of cool. I, I want to send the book to Evan. This is kind of topical after all we've talked about. The, the first chapter is about like the qualities you look for in a head coach. And like Pete gets mentioned like five times. Uh, that's really interesting, actually. And nobody probably wants to hear it from me because I'll, I'll go into like boring people with with business stuff. But one of the things when I've talked to Pete in the past, one of the, the things I've really been enamored with, when I read his book, when I've heard about him, when I've heard his philosophy, he speaks like a leader. He speaks like someone who's led people and understands the the complications of leading without being prescriptive about how to get things done and how to set people up and how to have visions for people and how to help like there's a lot of different styles to leadership and and he's got a very distinct one he absolutely could go and speak go on a speaking circuit uh, around the world around the country talking to fortune 500 companies about his philosophy on leadership and competition and and uh building people up and, and how to develop people. Um, yeah, he, like I've gone to a ton of leadership classes, ton of management classes. Um, and some of what Pete does is I think pretty revolutionary in terms of how he approaches leading other people. Um, and especially in the NFL, uh, a lot of the aspects of how he chooses to lead people is different. So I think, I think he's got a lot to offer. Um, I, I was surprised when they extended him. And I was also a little surprised at the timing. Um, it really felt like, Jeff, that they basically were saying, okay, you made the playoffs, we'll keep you around. That's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, I mean, there was, there was a, I feel like there was less than a 30% chance that the Seahawks would make the playoffs this year. Maybe less than a 20% chance. Like, and if Pete really did uh, bet his, you know, his, his next contract on doing that, big balls, dude. Big yeah. balls. Yeah, and I took a screenshot. Just when the news came out, something just, just stood out to me about how different kind of the vibe around the team was was Dwayne Brown like retweeted it with like the fire emoji he was fired up and Russell liked it and a couple of the other players I don't know if the last group would have liked that move so much and just seeing Dwayne Brown has kind of emerged as the leader of the team to me that just kind of jumped out to me I took a screenshot of it yeah something small like that really stood out yeah yeah it's definitely I mean it, it, the culture is changing so uh well dude i'm gonna let you go um yeah. it's been fun and uh we will have more to talk about because dude the playoffs are gonna be what a week from this coming weekend is that right yeah yeah they'll either be playing saturday or sunday unreal and <laughs> the crazy thing is I've, I've got a trip to japan late january Ooh. and i'm gonna be gone for a week i'm gonna be missing one weekend and it seemed like a safe bet back when I made the reservations for, for work. <laughs> I'm going to be sweating it. The Seahawks getting closer and closer. If, if the Seahawks get to like the NFC championship um, and, and I'm in Japan, I don't know what I'm going to do, dude. You're going to have to stay up at an ungodly hour. Yeah, it's going to involve some sake and I don't know. We'll figure it out. But 
All right, man. It's been great. Great show. Thanks for, for being here. And as always, folks, thanks for joining. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Please add a comment, a like, whatever, a thumbs up. All that stuff's helpful. Um, we're up over 2,000 2, subscribers. You'll get the latest uh, Cable Thanos videos as soon as they come out. And uh, notifications when we go live on, on Real Hawk Talk. And if you haven't signed up on Patreon um, to be a Hawk Vlogger patron, uh, patron uh, it's uh, patreon.com slash hawkblogger. And uh, all the proceeds go to to charity, Ben's Fund. So uh, we're getting close to the end of the season. So it's great to, to add more to, to the pot. Um, really help a lot of people out there that can't afford to to treat their uh, their autistic kids with uh, with different uh, devices, iPads, things in that of that nature. So anyway, that was not my most uh, emotional uh, plea, but hopefully uh, hopefully you join and be great to have you. All right. Thank you, everybody, and uh, have a great week. Go Hawks. Happy New Year.